I don't want a pickle Just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Noko Moto Podcast, episode number 106. I'm your host, Moto G. Pete. With me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Coming to you from Moto One Podcast Network Studios, Suite A, once again, going out to a whole bunch of places, to a whole bunch of people. Let's talk bikes. Uh, here we are, Northern Colorado's best motorcycle podcast or your money back now i'm not gonna say i broke the internet i didn't even really grab its attention i at best mildly annoyed the internet by posting on instagram that i bought the lamest of gold wings the other day (laughs) uh I don't know how to justify this purchase, except that it was so cheap. Believe it or not, I'm probably going to be able to sell it for some sort of profit. Uh, how cheap? I I don't even want to say, because if I say how much it costs, people are going to be like, well, there's no way it's in good condition. But it is in good condition, and it runs, and it doesn't need anything. It was started in front of us in the coldest of conditions, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had it in that trailer where it had just been, and, I mean, he had to jump it because the battery was dead, but what, 10 seconds it went up, right? Yep. Yeah, for re- for for reasons I don't want to say how much it costs, but uh, it's so weird because so we dropped it off at Dad's warehouse, and yeah, he's already upset about it, thinking we've dumped a project on him, which is so annoying. I'm like, no, it doesn't need anything. He's like, so you could just ride it out of here now. I'm like, well. Yeah, not that far because the front tire doesn't hold air. But that's the only thing, you know. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's where it starts. So I, ugh. anyway. Um, Says but, the man who bought a Greaves. Right, and still hasn't touched it with a spanner, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, how big is that warehouse? I mean, it must be 5,000 square feet. No, not that much. But three, right? Uh, well, yeah, it's like a good 80 by 200, 300. So at least a good three to 4,000. Yeah. Yeah. Like your two motorcycles and my two motorcycles are not a huge deal, especially when he offered to store all the bikes. Right. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) so we've got to figure out what we're going to do with this Goldwing. I, I know that I'm going to first uh, replace the front wheel because it's just easier to do that than try to figure out if this if this first year Comstar mag is bent or not. And the second thing I'm going to do is put a flat seat on it instead of the uncoolest of uncool King Queen riser it's got on it. Because it's not even a king, like an uncool 80s king queen riser. It's that dished out scalloped one. 
Yeah, I don't know how those ever caught on. Yeah. <laughs> I the bags and the and the the vetter fairing are almost cool, but not. Uh yeah, I I'm probably going to get so I'm going to I'm going to do the front wheel, I'm going to do the seat, and that's really all it needs. I'm going to clean the ever living fuck out of it. And then I'm going to ride it around to see if it'll prove itself mechanically. And then who knows, it may or may not go to Austin with us if it does prove itself. And then after that, it's definitely getting stripped down to original all the way. And then we'll be full on into summer and we'll see, you know, if it, if it fetches, I don't know, 2,800. We'll see. It's pretty clean. It might. It might list it for three grand, which is a lot for an old Goldwing. But this one is really clean. And I think I think original GL1000s are about to realize their cool factor. Anyway, this is probably pie in the sky. I'm probably barely going to get two grand for it. But here's the crazy thing. That would still be a massive profit. <laughs> Our, who knows? Maybe we'll just we'll fall in love with it. It'll become our podcast bike. I guess for now it is the podcast bike. It's it's replaced the Norge as our our weird experimental plaything. And then I don't know. Maybe we could do a raffle with it for listeners. There's enough local listeners, like you know, from uh, from adjoining states. Is probably you know a hundred hundred and fifty people that would throw down. On some tickets for it. We'll see. There's options. There's options. We don't have to sell many raffle tickets to recoup the money. <laughs> <laughs> There's options. I don't know. Maybe we could uh maybe we could just mail it to Australia and uh and get a uh a Suzuki across coming the other way. <laughs> Ford exchange program. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Oh <laughs> it's so weird. Because I really, because I, this bike is, I love how preposterous this bike is because of how cheap it was. But, you know, what I really want is a new Goldwing. This is the complete opposite of what I want. It's carbureted. Not only that, it's got four carburetors and it's all weird. And it's 1970s brakes and suspension and all of that stuff. It's all the things I really don't want. It's not even vacuum pump from the, from the tank. Oh yeah. But that's pretty, that's, that's very, very common. That went on so much longer than you think. Uh, Gravity feed for, for, for and petcocks to, to carburetors. I mean, yeah. it, it, it went on to like the mid eighties, right? Oh, there are plenty of 90s bikes that are gravity-fed. Yeah, with the gas. Yeah. Well, why, why if, you're, if you're just running carburetors, why do you need anything else? Why do you need a fuel pump until you go to fuel injection? Not a fuel pump. Um, <clears throat> like a vacuum valve on the petcock. You know, to stop the constant pressure against your float valves. I mean, uh, yeah. I, it's just it was cheap as what they always made. I mean, it was a system that worked well enough, and they just kept doing it. Did it work well enough? Are <laughs> are S are S forty Boulevards still still carbureted? 
Uh, they don't exist anymore, do they? I thought I they thought, killed it. I thought they still made the Savage, the S40. Mm, I'm going to have to look this up now. I thought they killed it. I mean, I hope they killed it. But God damn it, they still make it. Yeah, I bet it's carbureted still. Uh, I'll bet you it's carbureted, and I'll bet you it's just gravity fed. It's no vacuum anything. Yeah, it's still a CV carb. Yeah, told you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just the way it is. How is this outliving the KLR650? I know, right? I... I don't know why that bike gets this weird pass. Everyone going, ooh, it's so kooky to have a 600 single. There are lots of 600 singles. I can name 10 off the top of my head. It's not a kooky rare thing. In any case, let's get to the part of the show that people like. Right. Let's do a little (laughs) table of contents. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, well, first we're going to do best worst bike. Then we're going to do uh, either emails or a little how to sound like you know what you're talking about. Our wildly inaccurate tech segment which we're going to talk about suspension, specifically leading link versus Hasek or forks, traditional hydraulic forks. And then we're going to end with, I think, a MotoGP primer on Ducati. Mm -hmm. And how many more weeks do we have until GP starts? Uh, We maybe two have like a week and a half. So maybe we'll do Ducati and then we'll just blow through all the rest. Oh, because we have Suzuki as well. We're going to have to do Ducati and Suzuki. Okay. And then next week, round up everybody else. Okay, it's going to be a challenge. We got work to do. Okay, so if you're new to the show, here's how it works. And if you're old to the show, this is what you've been waiting for. This is how to sound like you know what you're talking about. No, it's not. This is the best worst bike <laughs> in the world this week. And this is the part where we each have picked already two motorcycles. One's going to be the best bike in the world this week, and one's going to be the worst bike in the world this week. And that's just the way it's going to be, okay? The queen has signed off on this. You're just going to have to suck it up and deal with those choices. Some people find that a stretch, emotionally but you know what we're the authorities because we have the podcast and you don't so try to put your big boy pants on and if you have issues with that just write a calmly worded email to contact at nokomotopodcast.com but if you can't keep it calm we urge you to remember in a last-ditch effort to keep it calm, remember that Diet Pepsi is not only aspartame-free, it also contains no crying in motorcycles. So, Swiggy, you have worst bike, best bike in the world this week, right? I do have best bike yes. in the world this week. Got it. <laughs> I, I always say it with uncertainty, but I haven't actually switched it up for a while. Okay, are you ready to reveal it? Yes. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is? The Royal Enfield Himalayan. This has been on my list, but I keep like 
pushing it to the back. I, this is for me. This is the new KLR six fifty. Yes and no. I mean, to a degree, there there is a lot of overlap in a weird way. So, a lot of people are going to ask, you know, is this a great off road bike for its displacement? No, no. Is this a particularly well performing bike for its weight? No. no. Are you possibly going to get better bang for buck performance spending an extra grand on a CRF 250L? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Quite a bit more. But that's not what this bike is really about. This isn't a high performance machine. And it's not, it doesn't fit into a particular class leading. It doesn't fit into anything, any particular rating that you would use to determine a great bike or by, there's no star system, no matter how well you subdivide it, that puts this out on top. But what this bike does, which many a good best bike in the world does, is it fits into your life. Yes. Because you'll have a lot of people who look at this bike and they'll say, oh, it's only 8.6 inches of ground clearance. It's got, it doesn't have inverted forks. It's got a crappy, you know, it's got a cheap monoshock in the rear. It's too heavy. It's not powerful enough. It doesn't have enough torque. The skid plate's just for show. Yeah. Which is totally true. It is true. But this is a bike that will do everything that the person who would buy this bike would want it to do. It's a little bit of a fashion accessory. It's capable of modest off-road performance in that it will get you down a very rough dirt road. It's not going to, you're not going to go hunting on this. You're not going to go out into the wilderness, but you're able to go down some fire roads. If you live off, you know, if you have a two mile driveway, gravel driveway off in the middle of the woods, it'll get you down there. It looks good around town, goes great with flannel. For the person who would be interested in buying this, it will do everything they want it to do. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, you're going to need better forks. You're going to need to upgrade this. You're going to need to change that. No, you don't. It does everything that a person who would buy it would want it to do. And it does it at a great price point, too. It's also something that you can ring out because it's only about 25 horsepower. And it gives you kind of a nostalgic feeling, even though it's a totally new bike. You know, it kind of, even though some elements of it are technical still and a little bit updated, it has the performance of an older machine that you can ring all the way out and have some fun with. But it does at least give you, you know, modern suspension. It does give you fuel Modern ish. Modern by, you know, up to date with the last 30 years. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, it is still 41 millimeter forks, which is kind of what you would want for that kind of suspension off-road. But 
it's got enough modern features to not make this a hassle to own. And even better, if you're just kind of going to buy the bike and you're not going to go for all the accessories and everything, the way that the, the rear rack is set up, the way that all the handlebars and the frame is set up, it's kind of all just set up for a, you know, do your own thing, get some bungee cords and strap stuff to the back of it and, you know, just make it work like an older bike would. Oh, yeah. Not since the KLR 650 has a bike screamed, improvise luggage with me so much. Yeah. Right? Now, for me, this bike, as you said, it's not going to win on a spec sheet. But as much or more than any other bike I can think of that's been released in the last five years, let's say, this thing oozes X-Factor. Yeah. And for me, the big home run with this bike is it really brought the Royal Enfield thing to off-roading, which is a Royal Enfield is not a great bike for long trips or high speeds in general. And even the new Interceptor and the new Continental GT they're still kind of sprinter, just enjoy a sunny day kind of bikes. I mean, you could do all sorts of things with those. They've, you know, upping it to 49-ish, 50-ish horsepower has done a lot for the for the bike. And that twin motors, it feels pretty good. But they, they feel great up to about 60, 65, and who knows past that, right? Mm-hmm. So th- this bike kind of takes the more of the classic Royal Enfield thing and takes it to off-roading in that the best way to ride an old Royal Enfield is on a country road with absolutely nowhere to be, right? Mm -hmm. Just 40 miles an hour, 35 to 40, just the bike's just putting along, you're just putting along with it, just enjoying the day. This bike does that to off-road. It's not, I'm going to see the craziest situation I can get myself into. I'm not going to be out there pretending I'm Lynn Jarvis, right? I'm just riding around my little town, and now I can do that on some little lanes as well. So, and, you know, really you know, get into Wait, some Lynn fun. Lynn Jarvis? Not Lynn Jarvis. Um, Travis Pastrana? No, no, not Lynn Jarvis. Who's the, Lynn Jarvis is the, the, the Yamaha team manager. Yeah. I was um, like, wait a minute. No, who, who's the, who's the, um, he's got what, he's got a J name. The, the trials bike champion. Oh my gosh. How did I con? Graham Jarvis. So this isn't for ripping it around thinking you're Graham Jarvis. This is for I'm off-road. I'm just taking in the scenery. Everything's fine. We're still doing modest speeds. We're not going crazy. It's not I'm going to push it and go even further off the path, right? Mm Mm-hmm just like any other Royal Enfield isn't for pushing the limits. So once you accept that, 
that it's for quiet, you know, strolls down just, you know, roads that happen to be unpaved, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden it snaps into view. And and I don't know, I I love this bike. If if I was going to cuz I'm not a great off-road rider at all. So this would be a great starting place for me to get something off-road. It's going to be a little sketchy taking it up I70, but <laughs> beyond that, it's you know, it's fine, right? Mm-hmm. We we could take this up into the mountains around here and do things with it, right? Yeah. So, you know, why not? And for the price, isn't it right at that like five and a half thousand dollars? Uh forty five hundred. Forty five hundred. Jeez. Yeah, it's so it's yeah. A hundred bucks a month you can have this. Like no money down. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. Except it yeah, it you just have to realize what it is. The only thing I've heard about these long term is that the exhaust kind of deteriorates pretty quickly. Yeah. But beyond that, like when this came out, we were expecting to hear a lot of bad things. And enough time has passed. We're not really hearing any bad things. And a lot of the reviews I've I've read generally just say, you know, it kind of just is what it is. Yeah. And if that fits into your life, then it's perfect. So there you go. Yeah. I guess the only other last thing to, to mention is this is one of those rare bikes that has its own logo. It's true. And it's, this is a pretty tough one to pull off too, but it's done pretty well. Okay. We ready to move to worst bike. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is the 1991 to 1993 Jalera Nordwest 600. So, yeah, if you're not clicking on the picture in the show notes and you're just Googling it on your own, it's the Jalera, G I L E R A, Nord. West N O R D W E S T 600 Nordwest. I can only assume is, um, spaghetti for, uh, Northwest or stupid. Um, here's the deal. Supermoto as a term really started on, like wild world of sports in the late seventies as a weird thing where these guys were riding bikes, racing bikes on half dirt, half asphalt tracks, even with sometimes obstacles thrown in, I think. And it was called like, um, it was called like super bikers at first or something that became super moto or whatever. And so some guys were, there were all kinds of different bikes involved, but what emerged as the formula was essentially dirt bikes with street tires eventually. And as a, as a sport, this never really took off. There was never any prize money involved or anything like that. So the only people that really took part 
were people who were super rich or people who were who who were able to do it for free i e journalists people who just like had free free track time basically and could I don't know. They were just so jaded they had to get something weird like this. But no one was making them. You had to make your own, much like it is now. But around the early 90s, there there was kind of enough buzz. Enough motorcycle journalists had gotten excited about these things enough that Jalera decided to make the first out-of-the-box supermoto. And this is what they came up with. So I'm not going to lie. This paint scheme is bitching. Uh, this particular one we're looking at is. But let's talk about what this motorcycle is. Now, we think of supermotos today as you take a 450 super sports off-road motorcycle. May I say that again? Huh? What'd you say? You take a 450, mm-hmm. you know, four stroke super bike, super moto, or super, you know, super cross bike. Sorry. You take a 450, like super, you know, off road mm-hmm. bike. You put sport wheels on it. Boom. You got a super moto. But around this first edition of super motos, the competition off road bikes were all still you know, 250 and 500 two-strokes, 352 strokes, right? hmm So, you know, having a, a 500 two-stroke on the road, especially for tiered license systems, did not really make any sense, especially on a yeah. dirt bike platform <laughs> with sport tires. This is not something you really would have sold to the public. So in order to get any kind of decent road-going power, they had to use what we would now consider large enduro bikes, right? They're all 650s now, but they were kind of 600s then. So this bike is like, imagine taking a 650L and putting street tires on it. Okay. This is not as a refined a thing even as just simply taking a 450 now and putting tires on it. So it's this giant single 600. And to its credit, it pumps out like 42 horsepower to the back wheel. and makes like 49 at the crank or something. But it's kind of heavy at like 380 pounds. And it's pretty tall at 35 inches or 36. I think I think it goes down to 30. You can adjust it down to 35 inches. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's but what? It looks like a really small thing, doesn't it? But it's actually kind of massive. It's like 81 inches long. It's, oh, my God. Yeah, it's like a big 650 bike. It's like a KLR 650 with better suspension and, um, you know, 20 more horsepower and sport tires. But it's 35 inches with sport tires. Right. Uh, 
Because most supermotos actually sit a lot lower than you would think once they've got the sport tires on them. Once you lose that couple of inches. Right. But that's ridiculous. Yeah. It, like, yeah. <laughs> so it now it has credit as being the first supermoto, but as something you would consider having today, it's horrible. Like, why wouldn't you just have a Honda 650L, right? <laughs> and this is one of those things where the journalists were in love with it so much just because it was something radically different. So a whole bunch of things got overlooked. So how did they get this 604 stroke in 91 to make almost 50 horsepower? Well, apparently, you know, I mean, this was the nineties. So, you know, there was a lot of, um, basically everybody was, homophobic in the early 90s and I guess Jalera thought that balancing the engine would make them gay or something because apparently <laughs> this bike shakes itself apart I mean things fall off of it like like it's an iron head sportster it apparently like body panels come loose and all sorts of shit in in testing, uh, the only thing I could find where, I mean, because the general public that owned these will come forth very quickly about like, oh yeah, like the bike's fine, the power's okay, the ride's comfortable enough, but it just buzzes so much you can't ride it more than fifty miles, and even the journalists are like, yeah. When we put a passenger on the back, they would complain a lot about the buzzing and all that. <laughs> It <laughs> has Galera ever made a motorcycle that wasn't extremely controversial and divided? I don't think so. <laughs> now let's talk about the styling. The seat cover that goes all the way up to the handlebars. It's a little interesting. Yeah, they took the whole... Well, a lot of these early Supermoto concepts did this. They were trying to take aspects of street bikes and dirt bikes and cosmetically blend them. It's, it, it's Because almost... they thought mechanically that's what it's doing. Cosmetically, it should do the same. And, you know... This is kind of... Fashion-wise, this is, like, equivalent to... You know the speedos that you could that you used to see like in really weird fashion magazines where they like go up over the shoulders. Oh, yeah, the Borat speedo. The Borat yeah. speedo. That's kind of what this says to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. It's something special. So it's got a sort of half fairing on the front that has bits that look like dirt bike radiator shroud, but then it comes up into something that's almost like a Ninja 250 sort of front headlight look, but it's a little too small, right? Like, it looks like its head is too small. Like, you know when Toad is turned into a Goomba in the Super Mario Brothers movie? Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> like his head is just too small. That that's what's going on here with with the front headlight of this bike. Um, it's not the worst thing I've seen, but it was a bold direction for Jalera just to say we're going to create this new category of bike out of the box, even though these existed already as a thing that people made. Jalera just apparently decided they were going to redefine the aesthetic of an entire category of motorcycle. And that's a pretty big move. Yeah. I mean, hats off to him for going there. Mm -hmm. But you can easily see why this wasn't going to catch on. If you hold your hand over the front half of it, you could be forgiven for thinking you're looking at a dirt bike. Now, with a weirdly large luggage rack and you know the tail sticks out a little bit too far at the back but okay whatever you're like okay i'm looking at a large enduro bike but if you look at just the front half you have no idea what the fuck is going is is happening right yeah nothing makes sense you've got these super low single piece bars there's no cross piece top of them or anything they're not clip-ons but it's a single piece bar that's low like clip-ons and like there's a like there is what is that a one and a half inch windscreen on this thing yeah why and then having the um like the super sport style nineties like uh paint stripe that you'd expect on like a six hundred. Yeah, except it doesn't point towards the center yeah, of the front wheel. Because it's over a radiator shroud. Yeah. Like Right. So it's totally got ninety it takes cues from ninety sport paint. It's and then also the the front fairing looks like it's gonna flow into some other full body work, but it just ends abruptly. And yeah, that's what you get. So there you have it. The I, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on this weird thing? I know a little bit later on in the bike's run, they kind of repented. People were like, look, this whole look is super uncomfortable. And they gave it more of a traditional dirt bike front end. And then a lot of people have taken the old ones and just converted them to regular dirt bike front ends. I'm so confused. Like, this one has, like, the traditional, like, white plate where a headlight would normally go, and then it has a headlight under it. Right. <laughs> like, what is this? I, this, uh, I can see what they were trying to do, but I don't understand why they would go this way when the concept was already there. Like, people were already building these. You just had to build one to spec that people could just buy. Why did they have to fuck with it? I don't know. There, there's a lot of somebody trying to leave their mark on this bike. Now, one thing I have to give them, and this uh, straight up hats off, is they totally nailed the wheels. They are these super satisfying three-spoke mags with a lot of real estate in them. So most people opted, well, they came mostly white, but they also came in some other crazy colors. 
and especially when these wheels are painted, it always goes off well. Anytime these these wheels are painted, no matter how weird, distasteful, and uncomfortable you might think the rest of the bike is, that them painted it goes off correctly for at least the bottom half of the bike. Yeah. But yeah, the rest is really weird. <laughs> and so, so what you end up with is something that was one, not competition ready and not competition competitive or not competitive competition, competitive, not competitive. And something that really wasn't very good for the road either. And being Jalera, it was weird and expensive and not reliable. <laughs> and, you know, all the things that the brand's associated with. Why did they go out of business again? Right. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of our even worse bikes in the world, especially these kooky ones, a lot of them I would own on novelty. You know, at least for a year or something. I don't think I would be much interested in this. I, I If I was going to go for this kind of bike, I would so rather go for, like, the Super City, right? Yeah. I I, I kind of get what the Super City was. This was too expensive to be good at the things that the Super City is good for, right? Mm-hmm. This this feels this seems like it would be a chore to ride. I mean, apparently it was, and even the riding position was confusing. Again, like journalists it, loved it, but they're like, it's upright, but you lean forward on the handlebars, which kind of gives it a sporty feel. What does that even mean, right? But again and again, <laughs> that's what they say, and it's just because these were guys that were a little bit jaded of you know, riding S rads and things like that. And see if I were at Aprilia or Ducati, every time like one of the riders did something to get them a penalty or like create bad press, I would have it in their contract that like we would keep one of these on hand. And that would be the only thing you were allowed to ride after any infraction. Right. Just build it into the contract. Now, I picked this bike today because I was talking with a guy at an event at my kid's school, and he had a a boot on. He'd broken his ankle recently riding a Beta. And I was like, oh, those Betas, that's really becoming a cult, isn't it? And he was like, yeah. And I thought about how I've read articles recently of – and again, this is almost exclusively the territory of moto journalists converting betas to track duty. And okay. you know, tur- right, turning these beta <laughs> dirt bikes into into track bikes. And I was like, we're going through that cycle again. You know, we 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 hit it once, like in on the way up to the you know through almost the apex of the speed wars. Then the gentleman's agreement was broken, and now you know in a in a post in a post H two world, right? In a po in a post 
Panigale V4 world, I, you know, where, where do you go? You have to get real weird. And the weirdest thing you can do is take off-road bikes and try to make them good for the track. It's a weird thing. Maybe I'll get there one day myself. Who knows? I'm into plenty of enough weird bike stuff. How long until we're putting dirt wheels on F4Is? And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? But there, there you have it. The if I can't even sum this thing up. Swing and a miss. Swing and a miss. All right, let's put a little break in here and come back with the, anything that's not this. Okay, so now we're going to do a how to sound like you know what you're talking about. And this time we're going to do front suspension. Now, a lot of people will nitpick and complain about the suspension on different bikes. People will gush over inverted forks and the diameter of their forks. And some of it's justified. The vast majority of it is not. But in terms of talking about suspension setup, all the different parts and all that stuff, here's a little primer to get us started with. So to start with, why do you need suspension? If you look at a lot of bicycles, especially commuters and road bikes, um, they don't actually have any suspension. The main reason for that is because when you're pedaling under your own power, you uh, suspension will actually rob energy from your forward momentum in order to do the shock absorption. And if you're just trying to get to work, you're going to say, no thanks. I want to get to work and not be a hot, sweaty mess. I'm going to keep all that, and I'm going to let my knees and my arms do all the work. But once you get over two horsepower on anything but the most perfectly smooth roads, you start to need proper suspension. Because suspension's real job is just to make sure that your tires always have solid contact with the ground. That's their primary job. In some cases, in more extreme examples, like on dirt bikes, especially if you're doing any jumps or anything, or you're going over really, really rough terrain, it's also to cushion the landings and to just kind of steady out the kind of to actually catch the bike. But for the most part, it's to smooth out any unevenness in the road with your motion parallel to the ground and just keep solid contact with the ground, whether that's to keep the bike stable or to make sure that the wheels are always on the ground to get constant power delivery. That's the job of your suspension. Now, when it comes to suspension, there's several things that, that are important. And there are several characteristics that people talk about tuning. Uh, the first is just What's the traffle? That's pretty straightforward. It's just how much the suspension can compress and how much 
you know, between top and bottom, what is the range that the suspension will compress? The next is rebound, which is when your forks are compressed, how quickly do they pop back up? Then there's the damping, which is when you compress them, how much do they resist compression? Outside of just the normal spring motion, how much is the oil damping the motion to smooth it out? And that's kind of no more complicated than the dampers in a washing machine. Um, and all that's really controlled by is having oil in one chamber and having a, diff a certain diameter hole that the oil has to squeeze through. So the more you, f you push on it, the more pressure it, the more resistance it puts up. And that's, that's a fork tube, essentially. So, so I guess probably the next thing that's probably worth talking about is the, is what's the deal with inverted forks? And why did we switch to them? Well, it's really to do with the fact that forks overall, uh, no, I don't want to go that way. Actually, should we talk about leading link and then we'll get into that? That's probably a better progression. Yeah, that's fine. So there have been all sorts of different styles of forks or a front suspension and people are still inventing all sorts of weird new ones. But what was the biggest competitor to forks in the past, and which a lot of people are trying to bring back, is leading link suspension. Now, if you've ever seen a Greaves, or if you look at a lot of old BMWs, um, even some modern, uh, what are the Russian bikes? Urals. And if you look at Urals, uh, a lot of them have leading link suspension. They're particularly popular on motorcycles that were sold um, with sidecars. And in a lot of trike conversions, people put leading link suspension on those as well. Now, leading link isn't all that popular these days on motorcycles. But it used to be a really good solution for a lot of things. The main thing that it did was that it was way more rigid. Because, you know, we all have 41 and 43 millimeter forks on our bikes these days. But that's something that, that's kind of built up over time as we realized 33 millimeters not enough. 35 millimeters not enough. 38 millimeter it's not enough. Now we've kind of hit a point where with a good triple tree that's really anchored well on the bike and with big enough inverted forks, you can now get the rigidity to stop the twisting between the two forks to stop affecting the front wheel as much. Or the twisting that is there it's kind of limited or tuned to a degree and the rider either doesn't notice it or it blends with their style or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So leading link was kind of great at a certain time 
for a few reasons. You basically have these extra arms that are attached to the frame that bend up and down with the bike, and that helped it stay very rigid. It also meant that because the spring wasn't having to, wasn't twisting, the action on the springs was much more stable, and the stanchions in the actual spring on those systems, it wouldn't twist and bind up as it tried to slide uh, up and down. So that was a great solution. It also, because it had that, that big link, whenever you were braking, any of the forward, you know, any of the deceleration from slamming on the brakes would essentially push back onto that rod, which meant that it wasn't getting redirected downward on the forks. So the front of the bike wouldn't dive whenever you hit the brakes. And a lot of old, and a lot of riders from back in the day really liked that if they were riding off-road because it meant you could get over stuff really easily because the bike just would never dive. It would always stay upright. Uh, but we don't use them anymore. And if you're an older dude, maybe you wish we still had them. Maybe you th still think it's the greatest thing ever. But there's a reason we don't use them anymore. In fact, there's lots of reasons we don't use them anymore. But probably the two biggest ones is racing and racing fashion. A lot of people straight up didn't like the look of leading link suspension. It can be kind of weird. Yeah. So, you know, sort of in the same way that even though it's objectively superior in every way, an NBA player will never get caught dead underhand throwing their free throw shots. A lot of people won't be caught dead with leading link suspension. They don't like it. They don't like the look. They know that other people don't like it. And it's just they don't want it to come back. But also, the way that regular forks work actually is very good for racing for a few reasons. One is that on a point-and-shoot bike with a lot of horsepower, you kind of do want the, the bike to dive in because that shortens the wheelbase. That's what trail braking... That's the advantage that trail braking gives you. One of them, yeah. Additionally, it's really hard to set, to set up leading link suspension. If you're just buying an average bike that everyone's going to get, it's got standard, it's got a standard setup and it's just a one size fits all. Leading link is pretty good. But if you're running a team, if you're running a race team, then you're going to be taking those forks apart every day of a race weekend. You're going to be swapping out the springs, changing the oil, rebuilding them, reconfiguring them all the time. You can't just flip a, you can't just swap out a leading link setup on a dime to a specific setting that you want. It just doesn't work that way. Not only that, but there's also now been all of this 
technology and all of this knowledge built up around these forks that there's so much of a catch-up game to play that you would never use them. It also affects, it's also very important to be able to change it all out because every time you switch frames, that also factors into your suspension and all the flex of that that also provides some effect. So there's no way that you would use the same setup with a leading link on a trellis frame as you would on a twin spar. In fact, where would you put the twin? Where would you hook it up on a twin star? To the motor? There's a lot of different variables where forks are just way more versatile. So that's why. A lot of some at some point, some old guy is gonna come up to you and talk about leading link suspension and why it's so great. But it's really not. Even though in some circumstances it may be superior, in the vast majority of cases, for the right price point, for the style that people want, it just doesn't do the job. Well, yeah, get out of that conversation quick, too. Because old guy that has ideas about how leading link suspension is superior also still believes two-stroke is superior, probably thinks Wankel motors are still a totally viable idea that some conspiracy is keeping us from, from realizing, and probably also believes that Ford is hiding a car that runs on grass or something. He may also have controversial opinions on interracial marriage. Right. <laughs> yeah. So... Let's see. Do we want to get into a little bit of other suspension types or leave those for another week? Uh, Let's let's leave leave it for another week. Okay. So at this point, I think we should start reading some emails then. Okay. So I guess we could just talk about this really distressing. Oh, the Bergman trike? Yeah. Let's just start there. We didn't really get sent a message so much as just a middle finger. (laughs) JR, this guy JR is trolling us. So this is, I can't believe that this hasn't already popped up as like a a wheel nerds Craigslist, Craigslist ad. We're looking at a Bergman trike with a sort of, how do you describe this paint scheme? This is uh this is Bible man's trike. It's it's got a little bit of you know like the all female biker gangs where they seem to primarily ride booses. <laughs> it's, it is sort it's of got a that custom, going on. Right? It is a little bit custom busa mixed with Jesus freak. It's it's like female custom busa Jesus freak on a Bergman trike. And it, so it's very purple. It's very purple. I mean, I've experienced purple before, but <laughs> <laughs> I have to measure all of my purple as before and after this ad. 
there's yeah there's flowers and snake because it's a metal flake per like some money was spent here well given the guy's asking twelve thousand dollars yeah quite a lot of money went into this so okay uh we're gonna have to just download this the back of it it says god's truth transforms and faith writer. So there's that. And I, I love that it's described as a true eye-catching testimony, a masterpiece to look at. It's been featured at shows. Uh, what shows are featuring this? Uh, <laughs> um. They say that they actually say that they sunk $27,000 into this. Now, what is the base MSRP of the Bergman? Well, no, this is a 650 executive. So, what does a 650 executive run? Aren't these like 13 and a half, 15,000, somewhere in there? 11. Was it only 11? Well, I mean, it's a lot for a scooter. So, wait. Okay. So, so. They, it's the scooters eleven, but then they dumped another sixteen thousand dollars into it. You know what? I think we need to save and possibly rehost some of these images and just move on. Okay, this, this it's is... something. Yeah. I mean, thanks, Jr. I guess the <laughs> Bergman. I don't want. All right, so this is from Jeff. And Jeff says, Hey, Swigamoto GP. I've been meaning to get this out to you for some time. I've been a long-time fan for the show, getting my fix from Spotify if it matters. I finally managed to catch up on your backlog and am now a weekly listener. Your evolution as a podcast has been great to listen to and is what makes Mondays bearable. Okay, enough smoking asses. I don't think that's an expression, but... We'll move on. I'm uh, sure he meant to say something about ass kissing or something and like autocorrect took over. Smoke up your uh, We'll never know. Um, the reason I'm writing is to request a show topic. I don't recall the episode number, but my absolute favorite episode was when Swigs went into the expose on the birth history and state of Suzuki motorcycles. I'm sure it required a ton of research, but my opinion was totally worth it. I'd like to imagine that other manufacturers have equally interesting backstories, and I'd like Swig to relay that information to me one of these Mondays. I currently ride a 2018 Yamaha MT-07, modded to the hilt, and a mostly stock 2018 Street Triple 765R. While I would be thrilled to hear, hear histories of any manufacturer, it would, I'd really like to hear the backstories of Triumph and Yamaha in that order. Also, I know you covered the MT-07 once as a worse bike. Thanks, Swig. But I like to hear the Street Triple covered. Best or worst, don't care. Anyway, enough of my demands. Thanks for putting on, for putting out a truly great show. So, I'm Didn't glad to hear you like the Street Triple as best bike. The 675? We had the 675, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of covers it. I mean, it is the next generation motor. 
but it's really kind of the same thing. I mean, my opinions of the 765 are pretty much the same as the 675. Well, we did not talk about the R version. That's true. We could revisit that. Anyway, yes. Now, as for the whole Suzuki expose, I'm glad you liked it because according to listener numbers, nobody else did. Well, <laughs> it was early on. Uh, the show was way less than half the size it is now, but it's in this weird no man's land where it's far enough back that people aren't going to just jump to it and people that are going back, go back and start at the beginning and they're listening through episodes, but then they're listening to the current episodes that are coming out often. And then an old one, and they kind of just give up on listening to the back episodes by the time they get to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just in the exactly the wrong spot. It's not just that episode. It's episodes around it. It's yeah, that's true. It's a little dead patch in our listenership. Which is why we're thinking we're just going to put the first 50 behind a paywall because, well, then you'll probably just listen to all 50 of them if you're going to pay five bucks a month for it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which we really need to do because the listenership's growing and we're just spending more and more money on doing this and leaving money on the table. Not a lot of money, but maybe enough to cover the hosting and buy a couple microphones. Yeah. And if we're talking about Triumph, are we talking about Old Triumph or Hinkley Triumph? I I would like to dig into Yamaha. I actually don't know a ton about the history well, of Yamaha. The last two times I've thought about doing a history was the one where the dude from the Harley Museum reached out to us. Mm. And then I decided, hey, why don't you... Well, not, I, I tried to get them to have an expert call us and we would talk about the history of AMF Harley. They asked for a time frame. I said, I don't know, like three weeks. And then we just never heard back from them. So I don't know. The Harley Museum can fuck off, I guess. Yeah. And then uh, I actually did a lot of research a couple months back about the head engineer at Triumph through the development of that speed twin engine in the in the 50s and it turning into the Bonneville 650 being punched out and all of that. And that dude's kind of a hero. He kind of came on to Triumph right at the 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 perfect time. He's also the dude that did the uh, he kind of made his name making the um the aerial square four motor. I kind of wanted to do a history on him, which he have to talk about triumph I don't, we might do that in the future and after that i think ducati's the best story actually um but we, we've thought about doing them but i don't know it's once you guys start paying for this with patreon you know like <laughs> this will all get a lot easier it's it's really difficult to justify the amount of time we already put into this. I re well, I remember that episode not doing too well, but I think the 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 show's evolved quite a bit now, and it's probably worth giving it another shot. Yeah, I mean, the absolute all time most fascinating history is Honda. It, it's like uh, historians often say whatever they're talking about. 
you know, whenever they're talking about the first of anything, they're like, yeah, except it, it probably already happened in China. Right. You'd be talking about something in the Middle Ages and the Reformation. You're like, yeah, and this is the first time we ever saw this in society, except it probably already happened in China. Right. Anytime you talk about anything in motorcycle history, as long as it's after like 1947, you can say, except it probably already happened at Honda. Mm-hmm. Everything happened at Honda. So, okay. Um, let's move on to the next email. So next email is from Rand. And he's asking about watching MotoGP. He says, hey guys, I'm really enjoying your MotoGP primer. I'm trying to figure out, figure it all out. And the problem that I'm, that I've always had as I've never been able to understand how I can watch the races. I live in Oregon, have regular cable, but hell if I can figure out how to watch the races. I think before it was a pay to watch special network kind of thing, but I think I've seen stuff that says it's going to be on broadcast channels. Can you close in a little bit as to how to watch the races? So, uh, what is going to be on regular broadcast television is Moto America. Uh, but you will not be able to find MotoGP on regular television, as far as I can tell. Uh, I think it is going to be on BN. Well, it will be on BN, but it's live only, and it's only qualifying and the races. And you still have to pay a bunch for BN. Well, okay, so you could have a crazy cable package that involves B in sports, B-E-I-N sports, which means you're going to pay like, I don't know, 20 bucks a month or something to add this package, which includes this channel, which is basically just soccer, and then every couple weeks does motorcycle racing. And that's it. That's that's what BN Sports is. And BN Sports, even though the only motorcycle racing that they broadcast is World Superbike and MotoGP, they will still manage to give soccer so much preference that they cut the races short occasionally. It's infuriating. But, you know, if you've already got DVR and everything, then it's not too big of an issue, and you can sort of watch it on demand-ish. You can, I believe also, if if you're going the Roku route, you can pay an extra 20, 25 bucks a month for Sling TV with some on-demand channels, and that can include being and options to watch MotoGP. Or, if you don't really watch a lot of TV, you're not super-duper into cable, it sounds like a lot of money, but you can drop roughly $170 on the video pass. That's $152 right now. Oh, okay. $152. Now that sounds like a lot, but people pay a lot more than that to watch NFL. Trust me. And well, it's a lot of content. It works out to about a dollar per session. If you watch all the qualifying, all the practices, all the races for all the classes. And then 
the other thing is the season's really long. It's 20, it's 20 races now. Uh, I thought they cut a race, but it's, it's, it's a lot. of. I think it's 20 races this year. It starts two weeks from now and it's going to go until January. And not only that, if you get the package, they're making all these documentaries and things now too. They're they're going to be doing a a full one hour documentary on every single rider, and you can watch all that on demand. Not to mention, you can watch every MotoGP race back to like nineteen ninety four. Yeah, so it is a hundred and fifty bucks, but it's a lot of content. So if you just want to be a junkie and get all caught up on the entire history of Grand Prix racing for the last 30 years, approximately, there you go. Yeah. Or you can just watch the last season and have an idea of what's going on. That is a great thing to do as well. As you watch, as you watch the races on the weeks that there's not a race, just catch up on a race from last season. So you have more and more context as to what's actually going on. And yeah, I, I dropped the 150 bucks. I am not a rich man and I do it every year. And you know, it stings for like a day and a half. And then you're like, Oh yeah, but I get to watch all this stuff. And they'll they'll do little things like there's um, suggestions on kind of like the most classic and best of races to watch and things like that. It's it's good. It gets you through the winter. Because yeah, it, when the, when it's not season, you you your 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 subscription is still active. So that's how you watch MotoGP. There you go. And then yes, this one. All right. So this was resent to us because this is definitely an email I lost. Okay. So uh, this is from Colin. And he says, hey, guys, it's Colin. It's been a while since my last email. I still have the MTO7 in the garage after moving on from the 883 Sporty and have made a few other additions to the stable and an unfortunate subtraction. Episode 100 was great, especially the early, the the. The Arlo Guthrie cover interpretation remix. In your recent episode with Matt the Paramedic, I thought of something to add. Having recently acquired some first-hand experience, I just wish it didn't involve destroying a bike and having my ankle bolted back together. I was thrown clear of my bike Superman style across a pickup bed and stuck the landing some 20 yards away from my first aid kit located in my tank bag. Luckily, I didn't require any of the items, but from now on, I'm going to keep the essentials in a jacket pocket. Just food for thought, as there's no way to predict where you and the bike will end up in a wreck, or if you will even be able to walk or crawl back to it. After the last episode about crazy engines that should be in bikes, I was comparing the engine characteristics of bikes I have owned, and I thought of an idea for a game. A set of specs are given, and you guys guess the make model Year for bonus points. This is a bike I recently bought from a guy in Centennial, Colorado. 249cc single cylinder, four stroke, air cooled, four valve, single overhead cam, dry sump, carbureted six speed, wet clutch, chain drive, kickstart only, two into one exhaust, no longer in production, was made by your favorite manufacturer, 
who currently employs the Marquez brothers. A Honda 250 single dry sump. So... I mean, it's got to be a... Carbureted. See, I was thinking this was a, a CR250. That's but, what I was thinking. But I don't know. I don't think the CR250s were six-speed. That's because you're missing an R. CR250R. You think so? Maybe the later ones. Maybe like the last jet of them. Because I thought the CR500 was the first six-speed. Oh, wait, no. The, the R is a no, two-stroke. That's what I was saying. I thought yeah. this was a this maybe a two-stroke. This, this is a, yeah. Oh, no, it's not. single overhead cam. Of course it's four-stroke. How could single overhead okay. cam be a two-stroke bike? Uh, yeah. Uh, it, duh. Duh. I don't know what this one. Then yeah. it's got to be a CRF 250. It's got to be a CRF 250. Wait, no, because CRF... two into no two into one exhaust. CRF 50 is a single pipe, isn't it? I mean, it's got to be a four. Uh, it's got to be a race bike of some kind that actually has no a header per per exhaust valve. No, this is like a 250 version of that 400 motor that with the, the two exhausts, but this has got two. It, this is a CRF 250, I'm pretty sure. Mm. Yeah. CRF 250L, maybe, with the two. Anyway, all right. Anyways, okay. And this is the bike he crashed in, Octo in October, having only owned it for two weeks, which is rough. Well, most people crash Enduros very soon after getting them. It's true. Uh, okay, so. Okay, so we got another one. 999cc. Yeah, 75 degree V twin, four stroke, liquid cooled, double overhead cam, fuel injected, two into two, six speed, chain drive, electric start, hails from a certain landlock, mountainous country in Europe, manufacturers, a thing for orange. Uh, that's a 990 adventure. Uh, no. No, no, it's not. The 900 and 990, 75 degree. This is a Duke. With two into two exhaust? Yeah. Uh, oh, no, 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 you're right. Spoked you're right, wheels. you're right. Spoked wheels. Yeah, you're right. 990 Adventure. Yeah, it yeah, it shared the motor with the Duke. You're right. Mm -hmm. You're right. Yeah. This has yeah. to be. There has to be the adventure. The details probably have to be uh curated a little bit better because that's uh that's a lot of info. It is. Um uh, yeah, I'm going with the Honda two. Well, I really CR, I really hope we got it right now. I'm going <laughs> with the L, the two fifty L for the first one, and then yeah, the nine ninety adventure. Mm -hmm. All right. And just to finish them off, he says, I remember you guys had a guest on who discussed the dangers of certain types of handlebars and fairings in the event of a crash. That would be John Del Vecchio. 
I can attest personally that the handlebars and cockpit of this particular bike will not severely maim you in the event of an unexpected front end ejection from the bike. See, that's what made me think Duke. Uh, the Duke's got a big tank up front, doesn't it? That would... Any case. Uh, okay, so finishing off. Keep up the good work. You'll overtake front-end chatter here pretty quickly at this rate. Yeah, we might actually be, like, straight-up tied with them at, with the release of this. Ooh. We'll technically For be the number one it. British pod, motorcycle podcast. <laughs> Well, the number one most prolific. <laughs> um, all right, cool. I think that wraps it up and gets us caught up on emails, right? Oh, he means as in number of... Okay. Yeah, yeah. number of episodes. I was like, how would you know how many listeners Front End Chatter has? Oh, Front End Chatter probably like has eclipsed this eight times in terms of yeah. listeners, I'm sure. It's like, that's a little weird. Yeah, he's talking anyway. about episode numbers. Okay. So... That leads us to our last, uh, no, no, another MotoGP primer, right? Yes. Do we want to take a break first or just go right into it? Let's take a quick break. Okay. Okay, so as promised, and as some people have enjoyed, we're doing our quick primers for people so they can get a little bit familiar with some MotoGP teams, riders, and the sport in general before the season kicks off in, I guess, a week from you hearing this episode? Or two weeks from you hearing this? Something soon. Literally next weekend. Next weekend. Ah, okay. So we're going to try to cover as much as we can in this right now. Let's start with Suzuki. Who is Suzuki as a team, would you say? So Suzuki's in a weird place because Suzuki has been essentially been a development team for a long time. They've been working on the bike, getting it up to par. Now Suzuki took a long break from MotoGP. Yeah, Suzuki took a very long break and they've only been back for about four years now. Mm, I would say five. Four or five years. I think it was the year... I must have been 2016, I think, they came back. Yeah, so like four years. Anyway, they took a long break, and their bikes were not up to par. They had concessions. I think they got... Did they choose extra tires or extra fuel? I can't remember which. But I they, think they went for extra motors, but... Yeah, so they had some concessions. Um... They've been getting the bike up to speed with everybody else. Originally, it was very underpowered, but it was very agile in a very Yamaha-esque style. Very controversial choice for an inline four engine, which only Yamaha does as well. And at this point, I believe the Suzuki edges out the Yamaha in terms of raw horsepower. A lot of people are saying this year it might be the best all-around bike. Potentially. But it's important to point that out because they've also, as a new factory team, there's kind of the allure of getting a factory ride, but also knowing that it's not a very good factory ride or hasn't been a very good factory ride. It's an improving factory ride. 
Right. So there's potential there, but everyone who signed on initially knew that we weren't going to do that well. Now, Maverick Vinales came through Yama or through Suzuki, and he got a win for Suzuki in Suzuki's second year back, like out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and some other riders have gone through it as well. And now the current riders are Alex Rins and Franco Morbidelli. Now, it's very interesting because not only are they a new and improving team, I think some ways through the season last year, up until that point, Suzuki didn't actually have a racing department for the motorcycle team. Right. So they only just created a racing division of the company. So it'll be interesting to see how another year of developments on a still relatively new bike, plus the more dedicated resources towards the team affects it. Now, Franco Morbidelli is somebody who just moved up to MotoGP last year. Morbidelli is uh, Patronus Yamaha. Who's the other guy who begins with an M? Mir. Mir. Yeah. Joanne Mir. There we go. It's too many M's. Well, okay. I got to say, for um, for these two writers, they're the perfect writers for this team. And I'll explain. So, Rins was sort of a protege for Andre Iannone, who is one of the biggest characters the sport's ever seen. In the middle of Rins's Moto2 career, he was accused of caring more about sunglasses than his career. And all of that. <laughs> like, he, was, he was becoming a, a bit of a lad. He was, he was going a little greasy Euro trash and hanging out with girls and partying and not really buckling down and doing the work. But he had so much raw talent that it kind of overcame. But at a certain point, it got competitive enough. He had to get serious. So everyone went through a period of really liking him in Moto3 because he was phenomenal in Moto3. Because he was teammates with uh, Alex Marquez, right in Moto Three, I want to say yes. He he. It didn't come down to the last race with him and Alex Marquez in Moto Three, the last race of the season for the championship. Uh, I believe, Mar- I believe he Alex locked it up pretty early on. Uh, I don't know. I thought it was just a dead heat between the two all through the season like they traded back and forth and anyway it doesn't matter I, I but he was great and then he he did oh, he was better than average in moto 2 but you know he was also there racing against um frenchman um zarco zarco who was unbeatable in moto 2 at the time but he was he was still very promising uh, and that's but that's also his sort of sunglasses era then in at Suzuki on the factory team see he's no longer he's not he's not viewed as like all that young anymore right just like Suzuki isn't really a new team anymore the new has just been knocked off both of them neither of them really have any excuses left for being new this year yeah but they've both slowly been turning up the results Maybe not at you know the rate to equal other factory teams, 
but it's all been going. So this is kind of the year, you know, since yeah, Rins not, and Suzuki getting... have had a win together last year mm-hmm. in a in a year where pretty much nobody but Honda had wins, right? Mm-hmm. I, the, right. There's yeah. an argument that Suzuki was the number two team last year. So the yeah, the the rookie pass has expired now. Right. And it's also it's a team and a rider that everyone kind of feels really good about liking. Yeah. So Rins did get a win last year at Circuit of the Americas. Unfortunately, overshadowed by Marquez finally not winning at Circuit of the Americas. Yeah. And for the purposes of this primer, the only thing you really need to know about Mir is he was another Moto3 phenom. Raced one season in Moto2, or was it two seasons? I think it was just one season in Moto2. And last year was a little bit underwhelming on the factory bike, but that's to kind of be expected for a rookie year. There are some thoughts maybe, you know, cause he was so good in, in moto three, moto two, that there were thoughts like, Ooh, have we got another sort of Marquez next generation talent? And it, it fizzled pretty quickly. And we're kind of looking at a, you know, Espargaro brother to Cal Crutchlow type of talent at best, probably. That's kind of where everyone's mindset is. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. He's still really young. You never know. But we, we got to blow through teams quickly now. So let's talk about Ducati. We love Ducati. Ducati is probably our favorite team, just, you know, in philosophy. They they always make the bike with the most brute force. You cannot watch a fucking race without them talking about the grunt of the Ducati. And it's one of those things that that the commentators say so much, it grates at my soul, but whatever. The bikes have, have the, 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 they're the ones that would win in a drag race. Yeah. They're, they're point and shoot. Uh, people say, whereas, um, it's like it's like riding a bull as as in you know versus riding a horse it's they they buck and they try to kick you off they're they're the brute bikes they're the ones that look mean they are mean crazy looking bikes there's a lot of angles there's a lot of things now we like that honda cheats through innovation ducati just does old-fashioned cheating and it's become <laughs> yeah. such a thing that Ducati skirts the rules so blatantly that this year, apparently Ducati just decided to come out with a press statement that said, we have something new that's questionable with the rules. Just guess what it is. <laughs> <laughs> like At this point, Ducati is completely self-aware that this is their persona with the public and they're playing to it. And I love it. <laughs> so there was the salad box a couple of years ago. Last year it was the whole shot device. And then it was the air before, scoop. Yeah. Before and, that, it was just bringing back winglets in a big way. In a really big way. Oh, it, it, well, they've been accused of 
weird things with the um, with the electronics as well. It's wonderful, and they've always got very Italian writers. So right now their number one writer is Andrea Davizioso, who um, he's kind of a mild mannered guy. He's another writer that everyone feels really good about liking. He's a little bit of an underdog, but on a good day, he's just as good as Marquez, but we're shrinking down to only having like three or four of those days a year now. Yeah. He, he's clearly got the talent, but he is, you know, everyone only thinks of Rossi as old, but when you think about in terms of like normal MotoGP years, Davizioso is starting to get up there as well. And the number of consistent days that he has is shrinking. As he gets older. He's got to be about 30 now. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but in racing, it's pretty old. Yeah. Now, I think he's one of three riders that has kids. It's like him, Cal Crutchlow, and one of the Aspargros. And Zarco. No, there's four dads in MotoGP. Uh, he's 33, by the way. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's that's old. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is not unlike the NBA. Like, yeah, you get a Tom Brady, you get a Michael Jordan, you get a Shaq. You you, know, you get you know, you get people that go into you know 33, 35 here and there, but not often. Yeah. yeah. So our other uh, so anyway, yeah. D- Dovi he he's kind of like a little bit of a Danny Petrosa. He's one of the most successful riders to never win a championship. Yes. Although he's probably not even a, he's probably only half the wins of of Danny Petrosa, honestly. But uh our other rider is Danilo Petrucci who I guess went to police academy, was almost a cop, became a writer, and seemed to only have one foot into being a writer until he just became a GP factory writer, I guess. And then he won at Mugello. And now is basically, if you're an Italian writer and you win on Ducati at Mugello, You've just written a ticket for life. Like you, you can yeah. just do whatever you want. So who knows how long he, he will be the number two writer when everyone else at Ducati is long gone. He can just retire whenever he feels like it now, apparently. <laughs> Cause he had that win and then really fell off. Like really yeah. fell off. So no one's really looking for everyone's looking for a couple magic days from Ducati next year uh, with Dovi and nothing from Danilo. Now we got to talk about Pramac Ducati as well. Uh, we're really going for all the teams now. Well, we've got to cover at least all of Ducati. Okay. So Pramac Ducati, this is the satellite team. Now we've said that 
the Honda's indifferent to no uh Yamaha's indifferent to their satellite team. Honda seems to actively hate their satellite team. Ducati loves their satellite team. Yes. They share data like crazy. They share everything. And so the number one writer for the satellite team is Jack Miller. If they could have three bikes on their factory team, they would have Jack Miller on the factory team. I think the only reason that Jack Miller does not have a factory ride is that Ducati is terrified of what Italians will think if they pass up an Italian for an Australian on... Especially an Italian that won on a Ducati at Magellan. Yeah. (laughs) PR-wise, it's just not an option. Right. So Jack Miller actually got a... uh, gets a current year bike. Right. This is like the Quadraro situation at Yamaha. Yeah. Yeah. It's just painted different, but apparently he's got a factory spec bike because uh, he... He's always he's on always the verge. a top ten, quite often top five rider. He's got some podiums and he's been turning up the heat. No one expects him to ever win a championship, but he provides a lot more entertainment and throws a lot more wrenches into the works of races than most riders do. Yeah, well, and he's also a little bit of a passport ride as well. Not in terms of like, not saying he doesn't have the talent, but being the only Australian rider in the GP class. Right. He pulls those eyeballs. It's true. But Eddie's a great character. Oh, he is. He really is. It's just, yeah, he, he, if you're going to fall, he's on the short list of GP riders to follow their Instagram. For oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> And keep the notifications on, because you want to see all the ones that he has to delete. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I guess, I mean, uh, we can cover them more in detail, but I guess you some people might tune into GP for the first time and unexpectedly see a lot of KTM bikes on the field and go, oh, I've got a 990 adventure. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the edge of my seat for this one. No, you won't. Manage you your expectations a lot. <laughs> like if a KTM gets twelfth place, it's kind of a victory. So the thing about KTM is that they are also a new team. They've only had two this years. Third this year. This is going into their third year now. In GP. In GP, yes. They have been making frames for Moto3 and Moto2 bikes, but they've this is the first time they've actually built a bike from the ground up. Now, every other team in MotoGP is running a twin spar frame because it's a well-known thing. It's well understood. You can set up your suspension around it. Everyone knows how it behaves. Even Ducati, who traditionally sells a lot of trellis-framed bikes, uses a twin spar frame. And KTM shit-talks Ducati for the fact 
that they're not using the same frames as they use on their consumer bikes. And they're very adamant about the fact that, no, we are here to race on Sunday and sell on Monday. But it's <laughs> not really working out for them in terms of getting the results. Now, Zarco used to ride for them when he had his pick being the top satellite rider from Tech 3. And he ended up going with them. And they were getting super pissed at him for not putting up results. But the bike was kind of shit. Yeah, and it's it not like is. anyone else could magically ride it when he couldn't. Everybody sucks on this bike. Everybody. So everyone lost their mind in the first round of testing when Danny Petroza put up the top time on the first day. But that was because no one was really going serious or hard yet. And it quickly turned into, nope, that was a fluke. Nothing happened. Yeah, so it's weird that there's all this drama that is constantly coming from the KTM. But it, like, they have nobody to blame but themselves so far. So, I don't know. We'll see where that goes, but don't expect much from KTM. Well, I mean, I want to see another factory do well and get competitive. I do too, but some hard truths are going to have to come come out. Like, okay, so along with KTM, you might see a couple Aprilia bikes and get real excited too. That's where you've really got to manage your expectations. <laughs> You know, I love the Tuono. I am now glued to my TV set. What's going to happen here? So Aprilia might be, I mean, they might be outstanding as the least successful team of all time, certainly in the GP era. Well, something that wasn't really kind of talked about a lot last year was that the Aprilia team was not factory supported. Right. So there, it, there has been a lot of shuffles. There has been some updates and some reorganization, and they are getting some actual factory support this year. I don't know how much. I don't know what kind of funding there is, how much development's being done, but it should be better than last year. So I'm not... But expectations are low, but we'll see what happens. Well, by far the most interesting and entertaining thing that's happening at Aprilia is Andrea Iannone's drug testing scandal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so their writer, Iannone, who used to be a factory Ducati writer, slash male model, <laughs> and... <laughs> who has his own scent. He's sort of a an Italian motorcycle racing um who's the who's the crazy actress that has like the vagina steamers and oh um I it's uh Gwyneth Paltrow. There we go. He's sort of a male Italian 
motorcycle riding Gwyneth Paltrow. He has his own lifestyle brands, and he doesn't live in the same reality we live in. No. (laughs) And, And that's okay, because he brings us a lot of joy. So he tested positive for a tiny trace amount of something that's illegal, some sort of steroid that's performance enhancing supposedly and uh i mean he tested for it and there you go but his lawyers have come back with a hair sample that they say doesn't have it in there which proves that it was a fluke he more than likely therefore was given something to eat or whatever that was tainted yeah, and I mean, this wasn't ongoing cheating. It was an accident. But there's also something in the rules that says it doesn't matter if it's an accident. It's still your responsibility as an athlete. So it's all sort of all over the place. I mean, he's not allowed to test. He might miss even the first few rounds of the racing, even if they come back to say he can race. So I honestly have no idea who the fuck is going to show up and ride that bike. In a, yeah. in a week and a half from now. Like, I don't know if anyone knows. KTM should just loan out Danny Pedrosa. I guarantee you on that first week, everyone's going to be like, is Casey Stoner going to ride a bike? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be someone that's been riding an Aprilian in World, in World Superbike. Probably. But I don't know who's uh, been on an RSV4 lately. I don't even but that's... know who the test rider is. Do they have a test rider? Maybe I should. There's notice. probably like a third Aspargo we don't know about that's test riding. <laughs> 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 yeah. So I that that pretty much rounds it out. Um, I don't want to. Like I said, this is just a primer, just to give you a lay of the land. Um. So yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be an awesome season because. I, I want to see what this Marquez brother dynamic is like. We like Yamaha can't get any worse, so they'll get in the mix. Suzuki's on a bit of a rise. Ducati's on a bit of a backslide. You know, Honda's still on top, but one day they will fall, right? You know, one day Marquez will fall, and, you know, along the way, let's hope some people buy some KTMs and that encourages BMW and Kawasaki and whoever else to get in the game. And yeah, you know, it's a rad sport. The stories are awesome. It's it's just the coolest thing going. So um yeah, and it's probably Rossi's last year. So, you know, you gotta get into it this year so you can say that you watched, you know, during the Rossi years. Because that's a special thing, right? Mm-hmm. And Rossi's still riding for Yamaha. This is like, you know, tuning in to see... Well, it's not like tuning in to see uh, Michael Jordan with the Bulls because he was winning all the way through with the Bulls. Even when he retired, I think the year he came back after his retirement was like his best year ever or something. It's so it's not quite like that, but it, this is a big thing. One of the biggest, most successful figures in all of sports... This, this is like their twilight, and it's something that everyone should see. So, yeah, anything else we want to add to the end of this one? Any special announcements, thoughts, feelings? Um, uh, yeah, I don't think so. Cool. So, uh, yeah, if anyone in the Colorado area has uh, 
a 78 Goldwing front mag wheel, Comstar, and uh, a seat or a headlight ring, get a hold of me. <laughs> and uh, with that, we'll, we'll keep everyone tuned on how uh, this Goldwing is going. Who knows? Maybe one of you will buy it. And with that, we're going to remind everyone to stay safe, stay tuned, keep fighting the dragon. Let's go out. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Cold, 